This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Segment 2, 11 minutes, coming down in 3, 2, one. Dr. Cal Cooper is my guest, and we are talking about, well, all sorts of different paranormal activity, telephone calls from the dead. He's a lecturer in psychology at the University of Northampton in the UK, uh, where he delivers classes and conducts research on death and bereavement and parapsychology. He is the co-editor of Paracoustic Sound and the Paranormal, co-author of Conversations with Ghosts, and author of Telephone Calls from the Dead. Uh, now I've had a number, well, my, my dreams are constantly populated by dead relatives. I'm at a certain age and I, my, my parents were of a certain age where most of my, if not all of my, uh, my aunts and uncles are, are, you know, passed on many, many years ago and they continually populate my dreams. Uh, mm-hmm. what, um, what are your thoughts as a psychologist on, on uh, dreaming of, of of relatives that have passed on or friends? They're extremely common. I mean, um, I can relate to it as well. I, I've frequently had dreams of, um, I suppose the one that crops up the most is my uh, maternal um, grandfather. Um, and so I was really close to him and he passed away just before I turned 10. Um, and so a lot of the times when I have dreams about them, that they always seem to be like a conspiracy theory that he'd actually gone away and he hadn't died, but the family didn't want to tell me. Mm. Um, so they're very strange. But the moment that I kind of get lucid and I say to him that this can't be happening, you're, you're dead. This is very strange. And if he was alive now, you know, he'd be in his late 90s. Um, the dream just stops. What fascinated uh, myself and also Dr. David Saunders, who's um, another parapsychologist in the department. He's also a, a dream specialist. Um, he, uh, we, we looked into these accounts and we thought sometimes there's interesting veridical information. Um, so one of the most famous cases within the, the Society for Psychical Research Files is um, the Chaffin and Chaffin case. Um, I'll, I'll come back. You've asked me um, what's the psychology behind this and what do I think. I, I think a number of things. If you've gone to sleep thinking about something, you will dream about it. And if a worry or something is on your mind, it will get incorporated somehow. And, um, you know, even if during the day unconsciously information's gone in, such so as looking at a photograph fleetingly and you've not registered of that deceased person, that may get incorporated as well. There's so much we don't understand about dreams and why we really have them and, and, and what's creating them. Um, but this Chaffin and Chaffin case, this is a will case and there were there were five sons and the father died and he left his entire estate to just one of the sons and it was one of the sons who was the most ill. So he believed they were going to die anyway, he wanted to give them the entire fortune and I guess the plan was that when he died, it'd be distributed to all the other sons. Um, one of the other sons, um, I think two years later had a dream that the, uh, 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 
seemingly from what was read and said that the Suns hadn't really got a major problem with this. There was no dispute, no arguments going on. I think everyone was living by, uh, living on quite comfortably. But one of the, the Suns had a dream that was so distinct from his father saying, go to my old jacket and inside you will, you'll find something. I can't remember the exact wording. And so the son woke up, didn't know where this particular jacket was, but asked his mother who lives some 30 miles away, something like that. And she said, well, I've still got the jacket. Um, or maybe one of his other brothers. And I'm, I'm kind of confusing all the original information. <laughs> here, okay. But essentially, wherever the jacket was, it was in one of the family members' lofts. He, he went up into the loft, the attic, and uh, found the jacket. It got a bee's nest on it. So they had to clear the bee's nest away. And when they got the jacket, they could have a look inside. And sure enough, there was some extra material in there. So something had been sewn into the lining. And they um, unstitched it had a look and there was a note, not an additional will. It was it was told in the dream there would be an additional will. There wasn't one. The note said though, go to my daddy's old Bible. So their grandfather, and they went to their grandfather's Bible that was kept by the father, the deceased father, look in Genesis. And they turned to Genesis and sure enough, within there, within an envelope was another will, outlining an equal distribution of all of the estate to all five of the sons um, signed by him. Um, and so it's been a remarkable case in the fact that th- you've seemingly got veridical information because the dreamer had no idea about this information. They had to follow it up and essentially go on this treasure hunt to find it out. The only person who should have known is the deceased. Um, so this case has been questioned. I, I had an email from um, a random member of the public interest in my work, um, a journalist from, from Germany, um, it was interesting when he spoke about it because he was very skeptical. And I talked about my work in skepticism. And it's interesting. He said, uh, oh, you know, that's a famous case that's been debunked. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry, we talk about this all the time um, at the university. You know, where are you saying it's been debunked or who, who has debunked it? And I think it was just hearsay. And it's terrible that because of the Internet and, and how the Internet chooses, people on the Internet choose to display this information, they'll say it's been debunked. I, I can categorically say it hasn't, but we are still working on ways in which we can find all these conventional explanations. So the latest paper was about four or five years ago by Robert Sharman, and he took the handwriting of both of the wills and the signature to handwriting specialists, and essentially they don't match. Uh-huh. Um, so there were two arguments. One is that... Um, you know, it is fraudulent in the second case. Um, doesn't explain the full dream if we accept the truth of the dream. Because if you say you dream about something, Richard, you know, you, I can only accept your word that you did dream that. And the same for if I tell you about my dream, it's a very subjective thing. Um, so we, if we're accepting that as true, the will itself seems a little bit dodging. But handwriting specialists also said that it's very common anyway that if you have someone's signature at age 20, it's going to look different at age 40 because our handwriting does actually change over time as well. Um, but there, w- there was more skepticism as to it doesn't appear to be done by the same person than it being an age signature. It seems in terms of aging, your signatures and your writing ages in a particular way. And the way signature one looks to signature two, signature, t- signature two looks like it was done by a younger person than an older person. It should have come first. Ah, right. So, so, yeah, so that's the uh, more of the skepticism added to it. But certainly not an entirely debunked case. That There's loads of suspicions and certainly a lot of a skeptical inquiry. 
Um, but no one has thrown it out and said it's a complete nonsense case. It's still up there as one of the most fascinating ones with a, with a lot of investigation behind it. Indeed. Well, I, I'm all about the data and, the, and, and evidence. And I, as I say, I am generally a skeptic, but, you know, show me some some data and, yeah. and then we can talk about it. Uh, let me go back to the, the phone calls from, from the dead uh, and, and data. When you eliminate <laughs> pro- prosaic explanations and so forth, do you have or do we have um, – Audio cassette recordings. I remember the old, uh, the old uh, answering machines that had the audio cassette, or even mm. di- digital recordings. Do we have uh, recordings from people who, who who believe that they've received a phone call from a dead relative? Oh, sure. I mean, all the original EVP stuff, the the kind of better reports like Raymond Bayliss was doing in the 1950s, those were all real to real recorders. Um, but later on, the cassette tapes you're talking about, and the mini ones as well. Um, that you had in the tape player. Yeah, people reported those. I have a few. Um, I'm looking at it now on my top shelf. I've got three files up there of uh, accounts that have been investigated and then filed away that um, I need to work on again at some point soon. And within that, um, there were some cassette tapes that were sent to me that were copies of the answer phone messages. And um, they're not long, though. I mean, I wish there were extended messages like someone would leave. Um, but the only one that I've got there that's just very distinct and it's an unusual sh- circumstance, um, very kind of um, sorrowful, is um, it was a mother who'd lost her daughter and she included a profile of her and a picture and the context. She'd split up from her husband some years before. And um, I think their daughter had been out and about. She was only 21, 22, and she just had a spontaneous brain an- aneurysm. And so that was it. She was dead. And um, I think a few days later, she'd realized that the answer phone was flashing, suggesting she got a message. And she was so shocked by what she'd heard, she called her ex-husband to come over and listen to it. And she copied it for me. And it's just um, her daughter saying on loop, you'd hear the beep, and then you can say your message. And then it's just, hi, dad. Hi, dad. Hi, dad. And so really interesting because they're adamant that's her voice. Um, so a number of things. It goes back to what I said about um, a child ringing a, um, a mother or father that's bereaved. You know, there's no specific names. They're just saying mum or dad. A lot of people are called mum and dad. And these people are bereaved individuals that seemingly would like a final goodbye because they'd lost her instantly. No chance to say goodbye. No prior warning. Um, another one is, you know, if we're questioning, is it anomalous? Is it going on in unusual circumstances? Is this beyond what we expect? Well, not necessarily. What what if this was, I I guess it's a mobile phone call. Sometimes when it's answer phone messages, um, they get lost in cyberspace and you might end up picking it up after the person has actually died. I've had that before when um, I got a strange text message from someone um, saying, uh, it was an ex-partner of many, many years ago saying, do you want to go to the cinema tonight and watch this? And it was a film that had been out some six or seven years prior at that time. And I texted them and I said, hi, haven't heard from you in ages. Why do you want to go and see that? That was out ages ago. <laughs> and they said, oh, God, I sent you that text message ages ago. Has it only just got to you? Because that film had since been out on DVD. And, and so it, it was just a clear example that sometimes you might send a text and don't think the person's necessarily being rude if they say they haven't got it. Sometimes they do get lost. And it was just weird that for years that I've been kind of roaming around until my phone finally registered and said text messages has just come in. And it's that. 
So it can happen with the voicemails as well. And it just so happens if it's in that interim of someone dying, of course it will seem like, you know, someone has sent that from beyond the grave. They were perfectly alive and well when they sent it. It's just taken that time to actually get to you. But we have to question the circumstances and the specific message that's said and so forth. All right. When we come back, uh, I want to uh, dive into the flotation tanks with you for a moment because uh, you oh, mentioned that, that research, and this is fascinating. Uh, Cal Cooper, yep. my guest. We'll be right back. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. I want to talk to you about some research you mentioned earlier uh, involving flotation tanks. Uh, mm-hmm. And and this is, th- these are uh, sort of isolation uh, tanks, right? Where you're floating in a, a saline solution, but it's completely dark. Am I right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So why, why, why were you invo- uh, researching flotation tanks? So we've, uh, We've been doing Gansfeld for a long time in, in parapsychology, and that's um, derived from research that was being done on separate, uh, sensory deprivation in the late 1960s in psychology um, using a similar method. And then parapsychology adopted it by 1974-1975. One of the leading players in that was a guy called Chuck Honiton. And... Um, We've just used it over and over again. And as I mentioned earlier, I've been involved in it. I was just getting quite bored of seeing overall, you know, statistically significant results. It sounds surprising that I'm, I'm saying that because you should be pleased a bit. But I was just displeased with how many times, you know, we have to keep doing that to, to try and please people. We shouldn't be doing that. That The results should speak for themselves. Um, but I thought, well, I'll take this in a different angle just to kind of you know, tease my interest a little bit. So I've always had an affinity to water. I find it very good for inducing an altered state of consciousness if you do actually like being in and around water. And I thought, well, why has no one actually used the flotation tanks? They're they're kind of mentioned in a parapsychological sense in various films like The Mindbenders with Dirk Bogard in 1962, 63. And then you've got Altered States in 1980. Um, that was playing on the idea. And then there's been several films as well that have kind of pushed the idea, idea since then. There's there's one that everyone always mentions, and I've just forgotten the the name of it. But there were series such as the American series Fringe um, that used flotation tanks. There was the um, British series um, about a parapsychology department in Scotland called Sea of Souls, and they had used a flotation tank. So there were all these examples in fiction Um about people using the tanks for parapsychology. And yet when I looked at it, the truth was it had not really been done to anywhere near that extent. John Lilly, who pioneered the tanks, had spoken to the Parapsychological Association in New York City at one of their conferences in 1969 and said, look, the hallucinations you get are incredible. Why don't you put them to use in the ESP studies? You could use a tank-to-tank thing and try and see if people could do mind-to-mind, you know, look at an image, see if you can send it to the other person. Um, but no one seemed to follow it up. Everyone had various ideas that they wanted to, but it, it didn't really come about. Some people even went as far as buying flotation tanks, um, but then never using them for any formal studies that got published. D. Scott Rogo, though, um, who was involved in the telephone course from the dead research, he had done a pilot 
um, there was a journal called Research Letter that was published by the University of Utrecht and came out around about the same time as the European Journal of Parapsychology. And he published a four-page um, pilot study on using three participants and four trials. And obviously, with that many trials, you're not going to get any kind of statistical significance, really anything you study, parapsychological or not. Um, but he, he wanted to look at what information they came out with when they tried to guess the targets that were on a... Do you remember the old Viewmaster oh, slide yes. reels? Yes. Yeah, that, that's what he was using. They, they were all divvied up into different envelopes, and then you'd pick an envelope, and within that there was a set of four, and then you pick one of those four envelopes, and that would become the target, and the other three were the decoy when it came to judging. So what they gave in terms of feedback in the tank, a, an independent judge would look at, well, which one of these, rank order of four, is the most likely outcome. So you're never going to get anything statistically with that. But they looked at what's the detail of what they're coming back with in relation to the photograph, the 3D photograph. Um, nothing interesting. He only had one participant who'd done Gansfeld before, so they were very talkative. But what they said was just completely off. And the other people had never been involved in Gansfeld or meditation or certainly not the flotation tank. So they said nothing for the entire trial because they were so fascinated with the idea of floating naked in the dark. <laughs> you know, it, it was just a very weird sensation. So they didn't think to speak out loud about the hallucinations or just even what they were purely thinking about. Um, so we followed it forward. Myself and Dr. David Saunders and Dr. Glenn Hinchman, we, we decided to do a, a further pilot study and uh, working with a flotation center in Nottingham and between the University of Northampton. And we played more on the qualitative feedback. We did 12 trials and we just out of interest kind of did a rank ordering thing yet again, knowing that, you know, it's not really going to reach anything. But we just wanted to see how well would I, as the experience, the investigator, being the person in the tank, uh, judge my own mentations against an independent judge. Um, so we have got differences and it is in favor of the judge more than me, which we've seen in other Gansfeld type studies. Um, but we're interested in the, the feedback that we got as well. And we're, we're generally looking at the use of flotation tanks for health and well-being and altered states of consciousness. So we will be getting some flotation tanks at the university soon. And, and what about researching the idea of people who have encounters with or communications from the dead while undergoing sensory deprivation? Yeah, um, I, I was thinking in the flotation tank. That I thought that's never really uh, cropped up. But I suppose you're you're thinking more along the lines of, oh, that's the police that found me. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, you're thinking along the lines of things like psychomantium. And um, psychomantium yeah. is another lab-based study where um, you would fill a, a room with dimly, uh, sorry, dimly lit conditions, but it's filled with mirrors. And this derives from, uh, again, you could take it back to ancient Egypt, where people claimed that they were staring in the dark into darkened pools of water. And I don't know if anyone's ever just tried this in a, a room that's pretty dark, but you can still see most things and gone up to a mirror and just stared at your own face. You struggle to actually track the own, your own features of your face. They start to shift and it becomes quite creepy. A uh, psychologist such as Sheriff was even looking at this many, many years ago and showing that people can't judge distance very well in the dark and their perception is just completely off. So your mind will start to fill in the gaps. But with the psychomantium, people are reporting remarkable things such as when they're in there and they're focusing on a person that they've recently lost, they will start to have a sense of presence feeling all the way through to seeing an apparition, sometimes being so powerful that they believe that they were able to reach out and touch them, hug them, and... Um, even finally get that last goodbye that they needed to off their chest. All right, we'll take another quick time out, finish up with uh, Dr. Cal Cooper. We'll talk a little bit about the Survival Research Committee when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. 
world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. To reach Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. The Survival Research Committee, tell me about it. Um, So when the the Society for Psychical Research first formed, they had various committees to kind of help with different tasks. So they would have a a library committee as they built up their their library that the members could actually use or even visiting public. Uh, They had a haunted house committee, statistics committee and and various other ones. And they've changed over time. So at the moment, we've got an education committee. There's a media one. There's a library based one. There's a spontaneous case committee. And these are all the main council members splitting off and specifically um, kind of focusing on different things. So I sit on both the Spontaneous Case Committee and the Survival Research Committee. Um, I think um, Dr. Matthew Coburn, he recently went back through the history. So in the next issue of the Paranormal Review, which is their kind of academic magazine that keeps you up to date of all the the general things going on, um, it's not a peer-reviewed source, it's just an information source. I think he's done an article on the history of it. I, I think it got formed around about the late uh, late 90s, possibly, though I could be completely wrong, thanks to the late researcher, Dr. David Fontana. And um, essentially, we, our chair is Marion Barton, and we've got various people that are on this, Dr. David Saunders, uh, Dr. Alan Gould, Dr. Matthew Coburn, Dennis Burry. And we had people on there like Guy Playfair, who was one of the lead investigators of the Enfield Poltergeist. And so loads of kind of big figures for parapsychology and psychical research have come and gone on this. And essentially what we do is we assess um, grants and research. We can give out um, funds for research, but it's all through an application process. There's an official application form. um, And then what are the grants required for? How much? And then what's the output of this as well? And what are the methods? What are the ethics behind what you're doing? It's a, it's a kind of reviewing process, really, and we just keep up to date on, on how much research is being done on survival, how credible does it seem to be, and where best to actually place the funds as well. And, and can you share uh, with us uh, a, a project that you funded recently that you're kind of excited about? Yeah, so we have numerous projects that um, come through. People think it's quite easy to kind of get this funding, and it really isn't. It's a long application uh, process, and we debate it for quite some time. Um, But we had a really interesting one um, where we thought long and hard about the lengths because this lady had to do a lot of traveling. But she'd found some really interesting cases where people claimed that they'd been reincarnated, and she wanted to go and follow them up. Some were children cases, some were through to adult cases. Um, But we we hadn't had any of these um, in recent recent times um, that seem worthy of actually following up. One of the biggest researchers for this was um, Ian Stevenson, who was a psychiatrist. And then more recently, you, you've had some great uh, books that have summarized some of the the kind of lesser known accounts that have gone off into journals. So James Matlock, um, Dr. James Matlock and Professor Elenda Haraldson, um, they did a book recently called I Saw the Light and Came Here that summarizes both of their viewpoints and research. Um, but what this lady's doing, I mean, I'm, I'm really looking for And three, two, one, go. Um, so essentially, that's it. I mean, it's been so long ago since we actually <laughs> uh, supported this project. It should be coming out soon. I'd have to go back through the, the emails now, but because it's... Um, it's a registered charity and an educational organization. We've had to conform to all the recent um, data protection acts as well that have updated. So any of the previous emails that 
would remind me what those cases were about. They're gone now. We have to delete them. But soon these cases will be published and summarized by this lady. And she's done a hell of a lot of traveling. And um, some of that was to uh, get respite because I, th I think she was dealing with um, um, supervision of one of her children that's severely autistic. So she, she took a lot of time off to go and travel to get that time off to go and investigate these cases. And I think her background was journalism as well. And she'd had some involvement within social science at a postgraduate level. So for me, as, as one of the recent things we funded, these reincarnation cases seem to be really quite interesting. I, I find the most fascinating ones when children seem to speak in a language they've never been taught fluently, or they demonstrate a skill they've never been taught as well, uh, and speak quite accurately about lives previous lives that seem to be possible to follow up. They're, they're very, very interesting cases. Uh, in, in summing up, um, ufologists often talk about the, you know, those three or four cases out of a hundred uh, that, that can't be explained once you eliminate uh, swamp gas and, and misidentified aircraft and all other pro weather phenomenon, all other prosaic explanations. They may be left with three cases out of a hundred. Where are you at in terms of of uh, parapsychology and and trying to explain uh, or give prosaic explanations for these for these cases? What is can you affix a number? Is it three un unexplained hundred? Yeah, I, I would go by that. I mean the the set of fifty cases I had when um, I was analysing the ones for telephone calls from the dead. I suppose there was just one that stuck in my mind that was just really fascinating, but it was so old it just wasn't possible to follow up the avenues of conventional explanations. But if it was what it was, it was fascinating. And for any spontaneous cases now, I, th I think I'd agree with you that you will get that one, two, three, maybe out of a hundred that seem to be quite unique. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you've you've got the white crow. Um, it was proposed ages ago in psychical research, this idea of having your white crow and you can't explain it away by anything else. It seems to be this unique anomaly. Um, but you've got um, Douglas Stokes, who's quite a, um, a well-known skeptic within parapsychology. He recently argued in the Australian Journal of Parapsychology about the idea that you can't really ever have a white crow because you can't explain away sometimes, like the case I just mentioned, it's too old to actually go down those avenues of conventional explanation. So grey crows, yes, you, you could have that. You have a middle ground where it seems to be a very good case for getting towards the possibility of, of white crows. But because you're left with a question mark, what if it's possibly that it could be this, in loads and loads of cases, then you end up with this grey crow phenomenon, not white crow. So I'd agree with that, three out of 100. We know from people like Jessica Utz, the statistician who's been heavily involved in parapsychology and remote viewing, um, she even said that uh, ages ago, when we followed that principle, because it seems to be very much true that one out of 100 people seem to be naturally good at ESP tests. And this applied when they were using it in military techniques as well. And that seems to be the case. But use techniques such as the Gansfeld and flotation tanks, and you seem to be able to improve your results. Is there part of you, I don't know if you can separate, you know, the the academic side of you from the other side, whatever that, whatever that other side might be, but <laughs> is there part of you that, that hopes that, you know, we'll never be able to nail this down 100% because we just want to, we want to have some mystery in our life? 
Um, I appreciate that we do like mystery in our life, and, and this is why we like things like magic and getting entertained by that and going to the theatre or seeing magic shows and, and various other things. But this does not just apply to parapsychology. And this is, again, why I hate the terms supernatural and paranormal. I mean, we don't say, oh, that this person has a particular form of skin cancer. It's one that I like to refer to as paranormal skin cancer. No, it's just one you haven't cured yet, and you don't understand why it's happening or how to actually cure it. So we use the term anomalous. It's occurring. It definitely is there but we don't understand the processes involved and go to any other sciences you can go to medicine physics biology you name it and there are anomalous processes occurring that we don't understand um, and so this is just psychology dealing with anomalous processes whereby people talk about apparitions whereby people talk of visions of the future we know the accounts we understand what they mean we've tested them in the lab but the middle ground bit the process isn't fully understood and so it doesn't bother me so much even if someone came out with a study that was a universal explanation for why we've got these anomalies why we're gaining statistical significance and it uh, you know it seems like sigh or why people have these experiences and it wipes them out it explains every single case doesn't bother me in the slightest because i i don't have a vested interest either way i don't have a belief in esp i don't have a belief in ghosts um but i accept as you said data i'm interested in data and if the data right now is the current trend leaning towards something then i'll be accepting of that the data until something says otherwise dr cal cooper leave us with a website I will give you www.callumecooper.com. And you mentioned a few books, by the way. Uh, one that's coming out very soon is another one by Alex Tanis. Um, literally within a few weeks, so watch out on Amazon, that was previously unpublished. Um, it was finished in the 1980s. It's called Psy in Psychotherapy. Excellent. Cal, thank you for hanging out for two hours. I enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thanks so much for hanging on to me, Richard. <laughs> okay. Having faith. All right. My thanks to Owen Wolf and Ryan White. Again, a reminder, Don Jeffries will be sitting in for me next week. I shall return the following week with Forrest Moretti with a fascinating count of the world's most famous disease, polio, told as you've never heard it before. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. Cal Cooper is my guest here on The Conspiracy Show, uh, the uh, the co-author of Conversations with Ghosts, author of Telephone Calls from the Dead, and co-editor of Paracoustics, Sound and the Paranormal. And we were talking about uh, Grierson and Melton and um, other people that had designed machines to record spirit voices. Uh, Edison, in a, I believe it was an interview he did with Scientific American, uh, hinted that he was working or would like to work on on a device that could contact the other side. Did anything ever come of that? Um, so that was 1920, and bear in mind, people like Melton, they'd already he'd already published around 1919, and so Grierson and a few others. If you turn to Psychic News and Light and various journals dealing with psychic phenomena at the time, 
people were dabbling with this idea. And I think Edison caught on to it because he was interested in spiritualism. He got a lot of Polish-American um, lab assistants and would frequently hold seances um, out of pure interest because of how much was going on in psychical research. Even his parents were spiritualists. But I think he was saying this because he got the media platform. And so I think he wanted to jump on it and, and kind of as a sort of a back off message to those people that were developing such things. Because imagine the, the, the kind of publicity and the money that you get. If not only you could develop such a thing and life after death were a genuine thing, so you could actually get in contact with these people. That's what it's proposing. And so you could commercialize it. And any relatives you so wished or any deceased person whatsoever, you could just ring them up and have a chat. Um, that's what it was suggesting. So I think he was trying to jump on the bandwagon. And it's kind of followed him throughout history now because he died in 1931. Nothing ever came of it, um, obviously, because we haven't got this commercialized phone that can contact the dead. Um, but years later, I think the Thomas Edison Museum's in Texas, and one of their highest requests is from um, amateur paranormal researchers, even through to um, universities, requesting these potential blueprints of a design for a telephone that can contact the dead. And they have to turn people down and say, we don't even hold such things. You know, there's no device. And yet there's been arguments and dabblings throughout time, and I think very kind of false um, newspaper articles and other things like that where people say that they found the blueprints or they found a partial design. Certainly nothing has reached the Thomas Edison Museum. So it's all fabricated, I think, beyond the point of him just suggesting it. And I question his motives for saying it in the p first place, really. And I can't imagine his shareholders would have been thrilled when he when he uh, when that interview was released either. <laughs> yes, I imagine so. Yeah, you know, it, it stopped there. Nothing came of it. Um, I want to talk about um the acoustical phenomenon that's related to telephone calls from the dead. And you edited a book with uh, Steve Parsons and you talk about infrasounds, low frequency sound. What, what are infrasounds? So that's more Steve's domain. Steve's background, um, he's got a, quite a varied one, really. He started off in nursing, but then went through into um, looking into parapsychology and focused more so on physics because he had um, a background in electrical engineering and things like that. So he, he's a physicist more than anything. And his PhDs uh, focusing on infrasound that he's been doing over a very, very long period of time before they even put time constraints on PhDs. And um, he's been looking at, you know, what is the relationship between haunted locations, let's say, that contain um, low frequency sound, this infrasound that's below 20 hertz, and people reporting in those locations unusual experiences, such as a sense of presence, hairs standing up on the back of their neck and their arms, feeling sick and uncomfortable, perhaps seeing corner of the eye phenomena, something fleetingly there, and then when you look, it's gone. Or even right in front of you, a blurry vision, something white or gray, gray mist in front of you, and you blink again, and it's gone. Well, it seems that when you are in areas um, that have high levels of infrasound, that's it's fluctuating like ripples of water in the bath. You splash in the bath, it gets to the end, and it comes back again. And if you've got infrasound, it's constantly generating that on a level you can't hear because it's so low. But it's still, because you're there, it's having an impact on the body. Because it's having an impact on the body, it's having an impact on the mind and your perception as well. And so it seems that infrasound is creating these experiences in many cases, um, or at least when you take a generator there as well, you can heighten them if you increase the levels of infrasound. But we have many instances of hauntings that don't appear to have um, a presence of in high levels of infrasound. So not all instances of hauntings can be explained by it, uh, but it seems to be a contributing factor. Can infrasound be sufficient to open and close doors? Uh, it can certainly, I, I think, I mean, I'm, 
I'm not speaking as the expert on this. As I say, Steve's the physicist, I'm a psychologist. So whenever we talk about this, I, I'm usually turning to him. But I, I've known it to certainly move things like, you know, you could potentially have a, a cup on a table and, you know, over time it, it's moving it because the vibrations through the table. That I, I guess that's a potential. And if a door anyway is easy to swing with the push of a finger and, you know, you've left it in a particular position, over time it might move. Uh, the whole slamming door thing, I'd sooner ask Steve about those kinds of instances. He might have even written about it in his sections in Paracoustics. I can't remember. Can't remember. But have you experimented with it? I mean, for example, um, you know, one of the, the supposed telltale signs that you're in the presence of a spirit is the, the, the hackles on the back of your neck, the hairs on the back of your neck uh, standing up. Can, can infrasound do that? Yes, it, it can. And I only know this from, from Steve talking about it and from reading the research papers. I've never personally experiment, experimented with infrasound. I've been with him when he's used it. We did a, a large documentary for a Japanese film crew at Margam Castle, and he was using it there. And about two miles away, I think there was a, a firing range for rifles. And the center of Margam Castle is pretty big. It's a beautiful kind of dome shape with a large staircase. And when he showed me the laptop, there were beautiful spikes of infrasound. And it seemed that when the wind was in the right direction in the valley, two miles away, it was carrying the bursts of uh, sound waves you get from the rifles going off over to Margam. And it would kind of echo through, again, on a level you can't hear, in this kind of uh, central piece. It acted as a beautiful kind of um, resonating chamber for infrasound. So I, I've seen the effects that it can cause. I understand it's working from looking at Steve, but I've personally never experimented with it to actually constantly observe its effects. Steve has, and he's cranked up the infrasound and made people faint and other things. Oh, that's fascinating. He made, yeah. people, he made people faint. Yeah, I think his work with when he's been behind the scenes with film crews, when they wanted an infrasound generator there, because he's so used to it, it doesn't seem to affect him because he's used it so many times. Um, but he's made people feel so woozy and, and then get lightheaded and, you know, cameramen and women and stuff like that. So he's the person to talk to. He really is. So his background in physics, your background in psychology, that's quite an impressive, I mean, to bring those two disciplines together uh, and write a book like this. Has that, has that ever been done before? A, a, someone with a physics background and someone with psychology coming together to write about the paranormal? Yeah, it's, it's nice of you to mention that. I mean, um, so Russell Targ and, and Hal Potthoff, I mean, when you look at that, Russell Targ's background is physics. And I would want to say that, I mean, I'm probably completely wrong. I've forgotten exactly what Hal's is, but I make an assumption he had more of a parapsychology element than physics. Um, but it, it makes a really good uh, dynamic duo. Um, and parapsychologists have biologists, philosophers, historians, anthropologists, uh, you name it. But there's been a lot of physicists involved as well. But that was the idea behind it. When Steve and I were talking about it, he said, hey, look, I'll talk about the physics of sound and some of the physical elements of when people experience ghosts and unusual sounds. You talk about the psychology and then we're bringing uh, contributors as well that have talked about anomalous sounds and the paranormal. Uh, and so that's why we put the thing together. There's a whole chapter on the physics of sound and a whole chapter on the psychology of sound. And we want to take that forward to something. He really wants to do a book on paravision. So looking at the, you know, the psychology of vision, the physics of vision, and then also unusual experiences people have had with visual perception as well. Uh, we just got about uh, a minute and a half here. Just, I, I want to ask you about um, mediumship. And um, the work of Dave Ellis uh, using a tape recorder. Mm -hmm. what, what's going on there? Are we talking about group suggestion or what do you think is going on? 
So that that was a, a group suggestion thing. So th- there's no, in that sense, the title of the book has nothing to do with spiritualist mediums or psychic mediums. That is the mediumship of the tape recorder. It's literally, is the tape recorder itself the channel for this information, allegedly from discarnate spirits, or are we the people that are creating this phenomena? And he was trying to follow up the, the massive boom there was. Loads of parapsychology journals were having correspondence, heavy correspondence in the back of them about whether what Frederick Jurgensen was doing and um, Dr. Constantine Raudover. There was big hype. Loads of people were in favor of it. Loads of people were against it. And he got funding from Trinity College as one of the student scholars to do a two-year project into, come on, let's look at what's really going on. And he could find nothing but pure psychology going on, saying, look, there's so much suggestion and other things going on. Um, So he he didn't even really end the book by saying, but I found these flukes or these curveballs. There do seem to be some odd things going on. He, He was quite convinced that there's a hell of a lot of psychology involved in playback on these tapes and when you're told you're about to hear something. And we already know that. You play a, a scrambled message up and tell someone, listen carefully, you will hear um, a cooking recipe or something like that, or someone saying this, you will start to hear it because the suggestion's been put there, as opposed to just saying, listen to this and then tell me what you hear. When we come back, I'm going to share uh, my telephone call from the dead with Dr. Cal Cooper right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to everyone listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Hiya to those of you tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey to all of you streaming us at zoomerradio.ca. Howdy to those who listen via the Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Cal Cooper, parapsychologist and the author of Telephone Calls from the Dead is here. Before we get back to Cal, a quick heads up. Uh, coming up next week, a special guest host, author, JFK assassination researcher, Don Jeffries, will be filling in. He, the author of Hidden History, Survival of the Richest, and his latest, Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics. David John Oates from Reverse Speech Radio will be along in the first half hour of next week's show with some more amazing reversals. All right, let's get back to Cal Cooper and telephone calls from the dead, shall we? Dr. Cal Cooper stays with us for the uh, full two hours, and uh, he is the co-editor of Paracoustic Sound and the Paranormal, co-author of Conversations with Ghosts, and author of Telephone Calls from the Dead, a lecturer in psychology at the University of Northampton in the UK. Uh, all right, so... Uh, I'm going to share my uh, my telephone call. There's some details here, and I, I I include them. I think they're important. Okay. So I uh, was my late partner in uh, in radio, uh, R. Gary Patterson. He was a rock and roll historian and a musician from uh, Tennessee, and we knew each other 
over the airwaves for many years before we actually met in person at a couple of live events. And at, at some point, we decided we wanted to work together on our own project. And so we began uh, working together on a proposal for a radio program that would uh, sort of combine the fields of the paranormal and rock and roll legends and history. And, and it's it's just a rich vein to be mined, of course, unexplained deaths and, and uh, ghost sightings. And you've got the, uh, the, the the legend of the crossroads with Robert Johnson on and on and on. So we um, our, our relationship, our working relationship really intensified. And we started talking on the phone or Skype, texting and emailing several times a week as we put this proposal together. And uh, finally, we uh, we completed a demo. We sent it off to a bunch of radio stations. And in uh, the spring of 2016, uh, we got really, really close to landing a radio program, uh, a radio station. My, my apologies, it was 2017. Uh, and... On a Wednesday in May of 2017, Gary called me and uh, said, okay, the meeting is for next Monday with the management at a station in Knoxville, Tennessee. That was fine. And then on the Friday following that call, I was sure I got another call from Gary Patterson. I, I'm sure it was on the Friday. Mm -hmm. And it was a fairly lengthy conversation. And uh, Gary said to me, the, the, the real purpose of the call was to tell me, he said, I, I plumb forgot, he said in his Southern drawl, I, 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 I forgot that Monday is Memorial Day here in the United States. So there will be no meeting uh, because everything's closed. And I can't remember for the life of me if I followed that up with, well, is it being rescheduled? I, I, I can't remember. However... That was the gist of the call. He called to tell me there's no meeting. It's been put off. And then we just got to talking about other things. And he said a couple of things that in retrospect seemed kind of strange. One of them was, uh, he said, Richard, you're a really cool dad. And I, I don't know where that came from or why he said it. I just took it as a compliment. And I, because I talked a lot about my kids and he talked about his children and I, I thanked him for that. And then he said, Richard, you know what? You and I are a, are a really big deal. And I thought at the time, okay, this is Gary's way of building us up. We're trying to get psyched up for this for this meeting with this radio station in, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And then before the phone call ended, I said to him, because when I think of Memorial Day in the United States, I think of barbecues. Everybody in the United States, they have a they get the family together, they have a barbecue. I said, Gary, are you having a barbecue on Memorial Day? And for the first time in all the years that I knew Gary, he got kind of curt with me. And he said, there will be no barbecue, just in a very matter-of-fact way. <laughs> and I thought, oh boy, did I just, you know, step yeah. step in a landmine here. And I didn't want to pursue it. And as best as, as I can recall, that's pretty much how the phone call ended. I figured, okay, I'll, I don't know, we'll, we'll talk again and he'll tell me what that was all about. That was a Friday night. Now, a couple of other details that are important. I know this is a long story, but it was um, it was May and it was dark out. Now, that tells me that it was probably after eight o'clock. 
because the sun stays up, up, you know, in May, we're getting to seven, eight o'clock before the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it was dark out. I remember that. And uh, the other thing was, I have a, phone, a habit of wandering the house when I'm on my cell phone and I'm talking. I just wander from one room to the next. No general idea of why I'm in one room. I'll just find, I'll suddenly find myself sitting in the living room. Then I'll get up and I'll walk. And uh, my wife later remembered me walking through the kitchen with my phone to uh, the, my phone to my ear, with a, what she described as kind of a far off look. And uh, so that's another important detail. So Friday night, I go to bed. And normally I'm listening to Coast to Coast AM, uh, which is a, a very popular late night radio program. Yep. Uh, I, I guest host uh, on occasion. And, and I usually stay up and listen. But on this night, I didn't. I fell, I fell right asleep. Now, had I been listening, I would have heard the news. I didn't. I woke up Saturday morning, went out to the uh, veranda. This was my morning ritual. Make myself a cup of coffee. Sit down on the front porch go through my emails, my Facebook messages. And there on my Facebook message is uh, a message from my colleague at Coast to Coast, Dave Schrader, who had hosted the show Mm. that night. He said, Richard, I thought you'd like to know in case you missed the show, Gary passed away last night. And my first instinct, uh, I just Facebook messaged him back and saying, well, that's absolutely ridiculous. I just talked to him. And then I immediately called Gary on his cell phone. Of course, I didn't raise him. I left a message on his uh, voicemail. Gary, they're telling me at Coast to Coast that you're dead. Ha, ha, ha. What's this all about? Give me a call back. Well, mm-hmm. it, was, it was all true. And uh, Gary had died at about six o'clock suddenly. And um, so I, I, I quickly organized a flight down in Knoxville. I went down to the funeral and... Uh, I walk into the funeral home and Gary's brother, Michael, is standing in front of the, the open casket. I'd never met him. I went up. I expressed my condolences. I didn't tell him about the phone call. I didn't think it was appropriate. But I I, I said to him, Michael, I got to ask you, one of the last things Gary and I talked about was whether or not he was going to have a barbecue on Memorial Day. And he, I said, I got to be honest, he got kind of cross with me and he just said he just kind of blurted out in a kind of a curt way there will be no barbecue i said do you have any idea what that was all about and michael Mm. looked at me and he in a very puzzled way he said he said that to you and i said yeah he said well that's funny he said because the day he died he was racing around all afternoon looking for a barbecue he spent five hundred dollars on a brand new barbecue and spent the rest of the day putting it together on his back porch so mm. anyway, I raced upstairs uh, that Saturday morning and uh, to tell my wife that Gary had just died. And she said, without me prompting her, you just talked to him last night. And I checked my uh, the recent uh, phone call on my cell phone. I had no incoming calls on Friday. I had no outgoing calls on Friday. I talked to no one according to my according to my phone. So that's a very long story, but yeah. uh, I thought it was important to get all the details in there. No, it's a fascinating one. It relates so well to, as you heard, the type two call, the prolonged call, and you get all these kind of finality messages so that there will be no barbecue. 
kind of fits in there. You, you don't quite know what the meeting is until afterwards when you speak to other people that know the person. Um, Rogo and Bayless mentioned that with people talking about uh, projects stopping and you carry it on and, and people thinking, what did that actually mean? And they had to actually reflect back on the call. Um, still, sometimes not knowing that person was dead, but they, they finished the call and thought, oh, they said something a bit out of character there. That was a bit strange, as you did, where you said, why was he so so rash? Why was he kind of so so sure of himself? And, you know, I'd have touched a nerve there. I'd have stepped on a landmine. What, what happened? You had to have a bit of a think about that. Um, but that also seems to typically happen with the, the mobile phone um, phenomenon. When people say they've had a strange experience, they look back for the, the information and it doesn't appear to be there. Um, that's also happened with the text messages as well, or after a certain time, it seems to self-erase. The only way you could take that further is to actually call up the telephone company and, and actually get um, a list of your um, incoming and uh, outgoing calls to actually see what happened. Was your was your wife um, aware that, you know, were, were you in the room with anyone when you actually had the call from him, or did you just immediately tell people you'd just spoken to him? No, I. Um, what happened was, because my wife at the time was sitting in the kitchen with my brother-in-law and she watched me walk through the kitchen and she said to me uh, um, afterwards, she said, I, I wondered who you were talking to uh. and, but I assumed it was Gary because I'm, I'm someone, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time talking on the phone um, unless someone calls me. If I don't recognize the number, I just let it go through. To, I'm terrible this way. But I, yeah. she just assumed that it was Gary. Uh, but yeah. she, um, so, yeah, she was, she witnessed me on the phone with someone. And, but my, my first instinct after this went down was I'm just misremembering this. He, he couldn't have called me. Uh, but then I had no call from him on the Thursday either. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, your only kind of thing there that's um, that's the final piece to the puzzle is, is the actual remembering of um, between you and also uh, your wife at the time that she says she saw you. What was the actual time? Is it literally just before it happened? Or are we actually saying, you know, the unique the situation here, you know, is it just after? And, and you had no idea about it. That's the only thing is, is remembrance of the time. And, and that's the difference between it being perfectly natural and a very unusual final call. Um, through to it being a very unusual anomalous call because it was clearly after he was dead and you could verify the time and there's the time at which he actually died as well. Right. My only clue is... That's the hinge. Yeah. My only clue was that the sun was definitely down. I remember that. Uh, And I didn't learn about the time, the, the actual time of his death until I went down to the funeral and I asked his brother and he said it was uh, six o'clock. So I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I, I, you know, these things don't happen to me. Mm-hmm. I talk about them on the, on the radio, but I'm, I'm not an intuitive. I don't consider myself to be an intuitive person. Uh, and, you know, I don't see UFOs, never saw one. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've had one other sort of semi paranormal experience, perhaps, but there are many prosaic explanations for that possibly. But this one, I have to tell you, uh, continues to rattle me to this day. Yeah. It's a fascinating one. I mean, I'd love to be on this um, this radio chat to talk to you further about that case. It is really nicely fits into type two. It's a really good example. You know, even though we're left, as we are with all the other cases as well, all these kind of, it could have been this, it could have been that. But if we're taking it as people label it, it seems like an anomalous phone call. That's the category it seems to fit into. Right, right. Um, let's talk about the, the psychology of EVPs. Uh, are there 
are there personality types that generally uh, record EVPs? Have, have you been able to study that? Um, again, this is something more for um, people like Anne Winsper because I, I'm aware of EVPs. I'm aware of some of the history in paracoustics. Um, I did quite an extensive, um, but I suppose also trying to be quite concise as well, chapter on the history of EVP and, and what happened. But more so, I documented the researches and the controversies. Take it through to more modern stuff and what Anne's doing. She has been looking at um, personality types and, and other things like that and sheep goat effects. So sheep being people that are classified as paranormal believers once they filled in a scale about beliefs and goats being the skeptics um, as well. Uh, but we've we've noticed differences in general um, ESP studies as well. People that are classified as goats don't seem to do very well at ESP on the whole, and people that are sheep seem to do better. And that can even be broken down into gender. We have males seem to be typically more goats and uh, females seem to be typically more sheep. But even though we're saying, well, maybe that's because, you know, we've got a difference here. The goat is actually trying to rationalize the experience, whereas the, the sheep are just accepting what comes to them. It doesn't make a lot of sense in the lab when it's saying that, well, sheep are typically doing better in an ESP study even though there's there's no um, obvious way of cheating, all the controls have been sorted, and yet the the skeptic isn't doing so well, or uniquely sometimes they're doing so badly, um, they're getting a significant result where they seem to be deflecting the target more than chance would expect. So they're not even chances; they're below chance. They're so dead against the idea that they seem to be, you know, producing what seems to be a psi effect, which is unique. But back to the EVPs, I think we could put that in the same category as well. You know. People that are believers of the paranormal are more likely to pick out words and phrases they can associate with um, for a question posed, whereas a skeptic listening will do exactly as I mentioned, where um, you know that they're looking for the conventional explanation. They're just saying, well, that doesn't actually sound like anything, and I, I want to leave it there because if I think about it more, I'll add extra interpretation to it. Uh, they did studies like that with Hampton Court Palace, and they took groups of the public crowd, famous place where uh, Henry VIII once lived near to London, well, more or less in that area. And um, they sent people around and they wanted to look at the psychology of how they judge different rooms. And the groups of skeptics jumped to a lot of conclusions and the sorry, the believers and the group of skeptics were trying to find conventional explanations for why they felt cold in one area or um, why they thought people had had experiences in another. Um, so we do know that different belief systems and then beyond that personality types and other things will lead to people creating different interpretations of an event. Hmm. Uh, I suppose one good one good example, if I can quickly get it in. Yeah, there was um, I think it was Arthur Ellison who was an electrical engineer. Um, he was involved in the original Skull Report, and that's a discussion for another time. But he he was trying to tell a public audience about the difference between skeptics and believers and eyewitness testimony and how they take in different things. So he told them about the idea behind levitation and said, in, the, in a moment, on this table in front of me, I'm going to levitate this object. And afterwards, I want a raise of hands who actually saw the object levitate. And he had separated the audience somewhat. And after he was done, and he said, right, there we go, the object's been levitating. How many people saw it levitate? And the paranormal believers, most of them, they, they put up their hands and said, yes, they did. The skeptics, on the whole, didn't really put up their hands at all, doubted that it did levitate. What was the truth of the story? Well, the object did, in fact, levitate. Why? Because he was an electrical engineer, rigged some magnets, and the object was levitating. He made it so on the flick of a switch. But some people were so ingrained in their belief system that even when they were told something was going to happen, because it went against how they believe different things, how they see the world, they even denied what was right in front of them. 
because it just didn't fit their concepts, even though it was being done not by paranormal means, but by known conventional means. It was through magnets that it genuinely was levitating, but they refused to see that. Confirmation bias. Absolutely. Yep. Who's more predisposed to confirmation bias, do you think, debunkers or believers? I think it happens on both sides of the coin, to be honest. Um, I've got uh, one of my dissertation students who's studying, um, and and I found it quite interesting, being a sceptical activist, to look at this extremist view, which we would call uh, dogmatic sceptics or pseudo-sceptics, where they're so dead against the idea of uh, evidence for Psy and many other things that their comebacks are often ridiculous. They either don't support what they've got to say with evidence or it's knee-jerk reactions and insults. And that's just not how science operates. We wouldn't get anywhere if we wanted to talk about the latest drugs or cancer research if everyone was just name-calling all the time. But that's how they seem to respond to when people talk about having seen ghosts and various other things, regardless of the evidence behind it. And the same happens on the other side. You get people that are too willing to accept without questioning as well. And and so they will be very much one track mind and very knee jerk in their reactions. Uh, in, in terms of uh, sort of a profile of of people that have had paranormal experiences. Tell me about do you have in- interesting case studies involving professional people, particularly medical people who have who have experienced what could be described as something paranormal? Um, I suppose from my own background, I mean, I've focused on a a number of things. I mean, my main area is bereavement care. Um, My original PhD was focusing a lot on thanatology and looking at bereavement care. Um, But then my work within parapsychology has been everything from Gansfeld, remote viewing, through to these spontaneous experiences such as hauntings, the telephone calls, um, and even most recently working with altered states of consciousness and the flotation tanks. Um, but so the, the professionals having different experiences that came up a lot when I was talking to the bereaved and some of the bereaved individuals that I spoke to were medical doctors. They were psychiatric nurses. They were end of life care specialists and spent many, many years working, um, healing the sick or looking after the dying. And yet they'd said remarkable things such as, uh, I remember one of the psychi- uh, sorry, end of life care nurses saying that when she was one night on the nursing station, she'd heard one of the emergency buzzers go off for an individual she knew really well. So she went up to his room and as she walked up to his room, she could see the door was open and he was talking to someone at the end of the bed, but the the end of the bed was just out of view um, because of the doorway. And when she got there, um, there was a guy stood at the end of the bed talking to him, looked to her and then just disappeared. And that guy that disappeared, she knew to be the patient who was in the next room that had befriended this guy who was in the bed. And she said to the guy in the bed, did you just see him? Were you just chatting to him? And he said, yeah. And I think they spoke a bit about his conversation, but she walked in on the apparition and seen it. She'd also said that the nurses on the nursing station, where there'd be two, three, four of them at nighttime doing a night shift looking after the ward, it could be two, three in the morning, and they would have a nurse walk by, completely oblivious to them, and walk off down the corridor or then disappear, who was actually a nurse who used to work there but had died that they knew. And this just became something they accepted day to day. I asked why the medical doctors didn't talk about this more. And they said, look, they're doing routine things. They've made things so routine so they can function a smooth operational system. Um, Everything works for them. So they're going from patient to patient, look look at their results, diagnosis, medicate, move on, treat. But the nurses are getting more familiar. They're getting down to that emotional level. And she said, I just think nurses are more prone to it because we are kind of getting down to people's experiences and emotions, whereas the doctors are aware of it, but they just don't want to kind of get involved in it so much. But even then, I I had um, 
people involved in my research that were medical doctors that just couldn't help but be fascinated by the fact that they'd encountered these kinds of things. Fascinating. All right. When we come back, we'll talk about communications with the dead through dreams. Dr. Cal Cooper, my guest right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather round the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Cal Cooper, the author of Telephone Calls from the Dead, is standing by in England, and he's with us for the entire two hours. My technical producer is Owen Wolf. The YouTube channel producer editor is Ryan White. Now, just a reminder that there are no live streams on YouTube throughout the month of August and the first week of September, but you will find this program up on the YouTube channel, Strange Planet, in a few days. You can access the YouTube channel, by the way, as well as my podcasts and information on this radio program at strangeplanet.ca. It's all there, strangeplanet.ca. It's more than 30 years since Raymond Bayless and Dr. Scott Rogo wrote their groundbreaking book, Phone Calls from the Dead. Well, what's happened since? For one thing, telephones have changed radically, and we've also had various new methods of communication available to us, such as emails, texts, and Skype. But people continue to receive anomalous messages on phones as well as these new forms of electronic media. It's a phenomenon which I've had a long interest in, And I've had some personal experience, as you may well know. So I'm delighted that Dr. Cal Cooper has decided to reprise the subject and bring the work of Bayless and Rogo up to date. Cal Cooper received much media interest for his research into phone calls from the dead after he received the Eileen J. Garrett Scholarship from the Parapsychology Foundation in 2009. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from the University of Northampton, and a master's in psychology from Sheffield Hallam University. Cal is currently based at the University of Northampton, pursuing doctoral research in psychology and parapsychology. He is most recognized for his research into survival of death, psychic abilities, poltergeists, apparitions, and hauntings. Cal Cooper, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Terrific. I want to ask you, you know, as an academic, some might say that this is a very unusual line of research, studying kind of a bizarre fringe topic from, you know, from your standpoint. Talk to me about how you became immersed in this topic. Um, okay. Um, yeah, I suppose some people would consider it unusual. Um, I, I certainly don't see it so much as that, um, but we'll, we'll get back to that. So how did I get involved? 
Um, well, I've always had an interest in, in people having uh, anomalous experiences, so looking at human behavior and human psychology. And I guess I never really labeled it as that when I was at school. And we used to have weekly trips to the library. And um, I've told this story so many times over, I'm kind of reliving it in my head. Um, but we used to we used to go there and then the teacher just kind of let us run free in the, the local library. And we go off to our own sections of whatever interest us or um, internet was just starting to develop as well. So people were doing that or playing about with uh, computers. And but me and my friends, like two or three of us, we we'd go in a group and um, we we'd go to the section that was um, paranormal. It was only like just a a corner of the library it really was the furthest corner away from any, anything and then on the bookshelf it was probably about 12 books no more than that where they kind of stuck them in sort of um, teenage interest and then anything that was kind of more heavy like parapsychology textbooks you'd have to order them in this was just a local library so there'd be stuff on local interest um so there'd be stuff there by uh, local authors talking about people's experiences of haunting phenomena in pubs and private residences and roads where people have been driving down them late at night and perhaps seen a phantom hitchhiker and it turns out there's a, a long story to that where someone was hitchhiking and they got murdered on that road and since then people had seen their apparition. Um, but I was also looking at books where people were talking about the Loch Ness Monster and what evidence is there for that or Bigfoot or alien abduction. So there was a variety of phenomena which we might call 14 phenomena and and it falls outside of parapsychology where we are interested in the mind, human abilities and perceptions and experiences rather than looking at zoological phenomena such as unusual creatures, the Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot um, or even ufology, looking at these ideas as well. Uh, but I was interested in the lot. People claim they've had these experiences, they've seen these things. Why? Why do they do that first and foremost? How much do our own beliefs, religious beliefs, paranormal beliefs and our kind of... Um, our exposure to that kind of stuff in, in the natural world, especially um, in the media world as well. X-Files was very popular in um, the early 90s as well. So there's certainly a boom in UFO reports and UFO interest. Why do people have these experiences and what's the, the common explanation for, us, for them? But even though I was, I was kind of dabbling with those ideas and I was questioning it and I was seeing some fascinating photographs and reading some interesting accounts... Um, my interest was was getting into performing arts. That's what I'd kind of been prepared for. I, I thought that's what I was going to do when I left schooling. Um, and so when um, I got towards the end of school, I was getting involved in more and more amateur dramatics. And then when I got to college, I was getting involved in some modeling and I was doing some filmmaking um, through some of the enrichment courses, which was like at lunchtime, you just spend an hour doing what you wanted to do in, in different topics to gain extra credit. So I did filmmaking. And, and some of the films that I did, a couple of them went to Broadway cinema in Nottingham. So they actually got shown. So I was really pleased with that. But I saw so many people going down the route of wanting to get qualifications in, in acting and performing arts um, to become an actor or an actress. And I thought this just isn't the way into it. Just because you end up eventually perhaps with a degree in this does not guarantee you to be you know, an A-lister that's in all the big films coming up and doing a variety of fantastic roles and being paid to be different people every day. Um, it doesn't happen like that. Um, what you need to do is, you know, keep keep doing it, keep um, getting involved, keep dipping your toe. And it's all about sometimes being in the right place at the right time and being spotted. So I just thought what you need is something you can fall back on. You need something solid. So when I was picking my um, my courses at college, I picked a variety of things. I did electronics, general studies, British sign language um, and psychology and photography. 
And so I thought, well, at least psychology, I might transfer that over to university. So if I've got a psychology degree, that can be used for a variety of things. So when I eventually got there, I realized that there were more and more UK universities doing taught modules within a psychology degree of parapsychology. Hmm. And if you went and did that, then you could also do a dissertation because clearly there's the interest there because the staff teaching it. So they have prior experience or perhaps even PhDs in it. So they will supervise projects as well. So that's what eventually got me involved in it. And I more or less uh, stayed there ever since, really. I, I have dabbled with acting since, but more so because of my involvement in the media, because of parapsychology, I've met known actors and actresses of the UK and gone along to red carpet things and got to know them and, and met other actors and actresses and uh, sort of like crying on the sidelines thinking this is where I want to be and I'm here but I'm just not quite there I'm in a different domain so uh, yeah that's where I am now that's how I got here a uh, fascinating uh, fascinating journey you've taken but the the uh, the prevalence of parapsychology is that in response do you think to you know, the spiritualist movement being very popular in England? Um, the reason why we've got so many taught courses, I think, is just because of more um, acceptance among social science, first and foremost. I mean, we've seen changes in university-based courses, depending on also media and public interest, because let's face it, at the end of the day, universities are both educational institutions, but they're also businesses. So if they can think of ways to get people in and do courses, um, and then they will play on that. And certainly parapsychology is of wide interest to a variety of people, whether you're anything from a skeptic to a believer. And uh, we've had some students that because of programs even like Most Haunted, which was very popular from the year 2000 onwards, some students came and did entire psychology degrees just because they knew that they could actually do that taught module and a dissertation. They weren't really interested in psychology in general. They were interested in specifically parapsychology, just one sub-branch. Um, and so media interest has kind of changed the amount of courses there are. Um, the rise of spiritualism, um, that, that certainly got people interested. It's because of that that we had the formation originally in 1882 of the Society for Psychical Research at Trinity College, University Cambridge. Um, and that's why people came together, scholars like Henry Sidgwick, Frederick Myers, and many others, that said, you know, what's going on here? People are claiming they can talk to the dead. More people are reporting about apparitions and haunted houses. These have been in texts and literature for centuries, but why are we having a rise of that? And certainly there was another rise around World War I. Um, but they got together, and then there was an American branch as well, 1884, and was fully formed in 1885, William James being one of the eminent founders of that. They were trying to debunk these claims as far as they could, but realized that there was something going on, there was additional elements beyond the convention. So they started to kind of act pretty much the same way as the SPR was doing in the UK. Um, and it wasn't until the 1920s, really, that things shifted from this independent research organizations to actually having university-based studies and courses. And that's thanks to J.B. Ryan and Louise Ryan at Duke University. And they established many things, not only a more scientific journal, they established scientific methodology for parapsychology, controlling psychic phenomena in the lab, and many, many other things. Um, and so courses have come and gone over the time. But at the moment, I think we've got about at least a dozen universities in the UK that have a taught module within an undergraduate degree, and then many more beyond that that will cater for research degrees, so MPhils and PhDs. Dr. Kale Cooper is uh, with us on The Conspiracy Show, co-editor of Paracoustics, Sound and the Paranormal, co-author of Conversations with Ghosts, and author of Telephone Calls from the Dead. When, when you're researching and lecturing 
on, uh, well, particularly when you're lecturing on death and bereavement. Um, I mean, what is the connection, do you think, between or have you found between the, the grieving process uh, and, and people who have paranormal experiences, whether they believe they've received some sort of a communication from uh, a dearly departed loved one? Oh, it's extremely common. Um, I even looked into anthropological literature that was going back to ancient civilizations and kind of taking this para-anthropological take, if you will, on looking at strange experiences even thousands of years ago. And people were having them. They were being documented pretty much as soon as humans started to document anything. Um, we have elements there of these anomalous experiences, people talking about premonitions of the future and interacting with the dead after they've gone, so these apparitions and visions. Um, but when it comes to me talking about bereavement, certainly I'll bring in the fact that as a consequence, the bereavement phase or even as someone's dying, we have some of this additional phenomena that's really interesting um, that can sometimes provide veridical information. So again, the SPR, they'd found this. They'd found that taking samples of hundreds of people at the point that someone's dying, they're on their deathbed, there's a rise in people reporting unusual experiences. So not only the dying um, saying that they've had visitations from deceased relatives, uh, sometimes uniquely relatives they didn't know were deceased. They've actually died during the time that person's on the deathbed and no one wanted to tell them in case that actually sped up their own dying process. So that was unique for the family actually hearing they'd had this recent visitation from someone that had just died that they weren't aware of. Um, through to the person actually dying, nurses and physicians and family members reporting strange things such as a sudden rush of a, a breeze going past them or just something changing in the room. Um, even now we have traditions in care homes and some hospitals where when they know someone's dying, they keep the window open in this tradition that the soul consciousness personality will leave the room. Um, it's, it's just a traditional thing that there's no kind of basis for that whatsoever, but it's a lovely thing based on these experiences people have. And then through to the actual bereaved, those that are left behind that are carrying on with their day-to-day -day routine without these people. Um, some recent surveys that have been done, uh, I think it was last year when I was reading The Psychologist, which is the magazine that comes with the British Psychological Society. Um, there was a, a study that reported somewhere between 70% of the bereaved reporting having had these experiences. My own research and previous research that I looked at has generally said about 50% of the bereaved popula uh, population will report these. So they're incredibly common, um, slightly more um, over the 50% average than the other way. So it's suggesting that more people will have them than not. So I'm partly fascinated as to why we have people that don't have them at all. And also what happens in their coping process afterwards, because we've ultimately seen that people that have these experiences, in terms of their well-being, their positive psychology and ability to cope, recover, remain healthy, they're in a far more positive state for having these experiences, regardless of their belief systems, than those that don't have them. And they do seem to occur regardless of age, race, um, social groups, your belief systems. We're talking spontaneous experiences here. So not going to see a medium because you want to. You're just going about your house, day-to-day -day routines, out driving, visiting friends, out having a coffee, and boom, something just happens. Um, and so that they're fascinating. Some people have multiple experiences. Some people just have one, but very, very common. That's fascinating. I, I wasn't aware that, that that it seems to help in the grieving process, that people who are bereaved, well, I mean, it does make sense that they would find comfort uh, in in uh, some sort of a communication from a loved one from the other side. But I, I didn't know that it had been studied, I suppose, to that extent. 
Yeah, we're in the early stages of at least applying measures so we can look at health gains before and afterwards as well. And we're doing more and more tentative research on the mediumship side of things. So we've got some studies at Stansted Hall being done looking into the neuroscience behind mediums. So if they really do claim they're in contacting the dead, then what kind of changes are going on in brainwave activity? That's research being done by my colleagues. What I've done is looked at, okay, let's look at that group of people that did seek out an anomalous experience by going purposefully to a medium because they didn't want to get stigmatized by saying, I'm struggling to cope with grief. I had to go and see a grief counselor. I'm currently undergoing counseling. They went to what's considered a popular entertainment factor, which is going to see the medium. And most commonly, these mediums will come out with very generalized information um, that you know you can look at cold reading and barn scripts and realize you could apply these to many people. True, we could look into instances where it's very specific information, but let's stick with an example. Let's just say it was a very general reading. Even so, that person still kind of latched on to anything they see as a positive, and they will take comfort from that. And um, we're trying to kind of get that research out there because unless someone's had something where something really unethical was going on or the medium um, just said some things that really you know, touched a nerve with some people. On the whole, I've only ever seen reports of, again, people purposefully going to see mediums as a positive, even though we've had popular TV um, people claiming to be skeptics. I, I'm a skeptical activist, so sometimes I don't like to be associated with people that claim to be skeptics on TV that then say something that isn't supported by any research evidence whatsoever. And they'll often say it's very bad that mediums are doing this. It's damaging to the bereave and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, on what basis? On what basis? I've never read any research that said that. I'd love to see the papers because in my hand at the moment, I've got everything that we can find from myself and colleagues. There only seems to be five or six papers that have formally studied mediums in this capacity. So on what basis are you saying it's damaging? Because you believe that they're lying to them and they're taking money for it? Well, you know, you could pay for counselling as well. It doesn't mean to say that the counsellors offering the information they truthfully believe is, you know, what really must be done. You know, we could question that and, and how far in someone's own head they are saying the truth. It, it sends you into a whole minefield of possibilities. So if that medium genuinely believes they're doing it and the person genuinely believes they're receiving a reading, then let's ignore the ontology, what's actually going on in the process is true or false. Let's look at the impact. And the impact says something positive is going on in the vast majority of cases, which is really interesting for us health-wise and people's psychology. That is interesting. I never, I'd never thought of that that way because uh, I guess I would put myself in the other camp and think, well, you know, I'm conflicted by the whole idea of, you know, whether such communication, genuine communication is possible. I'm open to it, but I'm conflicted by mm -hmm. it. But uh, I'd and I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about, you know, the 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 hoaxsters and the fraudsters out there that and there are many uh but i never thought that even if they are frauds they're they're doing some good yeah it's fascinating there's some um, mediums that are really out there and they push themselves quite publicly and they've been debunked many times and you see some photos or footage that makes it very clear or even people writing reports on them and yet they will still continue to practice and people still continue to follow them so if those people are happy to do so and they're not parting with money to do so you, I mean that's another side of things how far does it become like a gambling addiction to keep going to a medium um, if they're not kind of um, losing out themselves by following this person they're gaining comfort from what they say fine fine i mean you know it's the same scenario as a counselor and how far you choose to keep going with the counselor i suppose i mean it kind of just sprung to mind because i just saw one drive past the house but a driving instructor how far do you keep on paying for a driving instructor as well until you believe that you've got enough advice that you need to actually do things independently and that's what's going on here you suffered a bereavement you've gone to see the medium but at what point do you decide to step away 
because you've had the messages of comfort that you need. And eventually you are going to have to just live day to day life without that person around. And so take the advice, but you can't keep getting it week by week. That's at the point that you really do need to seek proper professional help. Uh, we're heading into a break. We've got a couple minutes here. Uh, and on the other side, I want to talk specifically about telephone calls from the dead. Uh, but I, I, I want to ask you personally, have you, have you had uh, what you would classify as a, as a paranormal experience? Um, not particularly, no. I mean, I, I've been involved in um, the lab studies for ESP and various other things and actually working within parapsychology in the university-based setting, not just at the University of Northampton, but going to other universities as well and seeing what they're doing. Um, the results are fascinating as far as we trust statistics in social science and, and medicine. And we're looking for you know, what's statistically significant that goes way beyond what chance expects and also how good the effect is. Um, and so that for me, looking at the numbers and what it means, knowing that we put all these controls in place so it's not possible for the participant to cheat, it's not possible for the, for the experimenters to cheat, and often the targets are are kind of selected after the study is done. So even the targets themselves, what they're trying to focus on is precognitive. That for me is is absolutely fascinating. There's this big debate that goes on in parapsychology that, um, you know, we've got a replication problem. We can't replicate these effects. But I've never seen that personally in my own journey and working with various colleagues. We've had fantastic results at Northampton. And, and I've seen that quite well at universities that I go and visit and lecture at as well. I've interviewed Russell Targ a number of times who... Uh, conducted similar studies at the Stanford Research Institute. And, and he told me, he said, there is more evidence that ESP is real than there is that bare aspirin cures headaches. What do you think of that <laughs> rather bold statement? Yeah, yeah, to a large extent, looking at the, the actual data for it, I would agree when you look at the meta-analyses that have been conducted, which is a study that looks at all a, a particular bunch of studies that are very similar, and it, it estimates how good the methods were and, and so forth, and it, it even includes those that did find something and those that didn't. It looks at what's the overall effect. And there are some really fantastic overall effects for parapsychological phenomena, even than you can find for the most commonplace psychological phenomena we talk about day to day and that we seemingly accept. And yet when you look at the studies, they're terrible. They're really weak. And yet because it's a popular phenomena, it's a popular behavior or emotional characteristic, we accept it. Because we've put stupid labels on things, paranormal, uh, beyond the normal, supernatural, it's natural, but it goes beyond that. They are terrible terms. As I mentioned with the bereavement instances, if it's happening more often than not, then how's it paranormal? It doesn't make any sense. It's natural. It's not supernatural. It's normal. It's not paranormal. What is supernatural? What is paranormal is why we have minority cases. Why do we have a minority not experiencing it? One in four people say that they've had telepathic experiences in their lifetime. Um, we've even had general surveys done um, that, you know, every time they're taken, they come out with interesting averages of about 70% of people relating to telepathic experiences. Um, so the, the statistics are really fascinating for it. We've got a lot of evidence anecdotally and also in terms of the lab, I think it's been done too much to be often, uh, sorry, to be, uh, it's been done too often, to be honest. Um, you know, we've been doing it more often than any other science has actually required of a phenomena. Now, the amount of time studies have been done just to produce statistics after statistics is ridiculous for parapsychology. All right, we'll uh, take a time out, come back, and uh, we'll uh, dive into telephone calls from the dead with Dr. Callum Cooper right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. 
This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Hey, next week on the program, a special guest host sitting in for yours truly, Don Jeffries, JFK assassination researcher and the author of Crimes and Cover-Ups in American Politics, 1776 to 1963, also the author of Survival of the Richest, I wrote the foreword to that, and Hidden History with a foreword by Roger Stone. Don will be sitting in for the full two hours as a special guest host next week. Be sure to be listening for that. Cal Cooper stays with us. The book, Telephone Calls from the Dead. First of all, tell us how we can get a copy of that. Um, That should be on Amazon.co.uk and on Amazon.com. I also think that very soon it needs to be brought out as some sort of ebook or Kindle edition because it was only ever a a physical copy. And I think that's kind of uh, drastically running out and needs at some point an update maybe. But that's where you can find it. This particular uh, phenomenon, does it um, does it coincide or does it does its history begin with the actual advent of the of the of the device, the telephone? Um, Any electrical device that's been created for communication. So even going back to the wireless telegraph. Um, people had reported unusual communications over the devices. Um, so you've got a lot of human psychology going on there and a lot of kind of um, misperception and possible false memories as to what really happened or even just a complete misunderstanding of how this equipment actually works. So uh, every time we've developed technology throughout history, you will find reports of people saying they've had unusual experiences with the wireless telegraph, the radio, the telephone, the television, you name it. So it doesn't just start with the telephone. You've classified uh, this phenomenon into, I I believe, three main categories. Um, It was brought into five. Five. So, yeah, when Rogo and Bayless, they produced a book in 1979 called Phone Calls from the Dead. And it was an analysis of 50 cases because they'd not heard of anyone research this before, but they'd been collecting loads of cases of it. So they thought this is time for something to actually come together. And they only published it as a book. It was never a peer-reviewed paper, even though colleagues argued that they need to get round to doing that. And beyond that, they only ever did some book chapters on it. Uh, so it's a shame. So after that, I decided to make it more thorough, put it in the scientific domain, get some peer-reviewed papers done. Um, so it was assessed by colleagues that I didn't know, sometimes even people I don't know, statisticians, you name it. And um, So when I actually took the existing cases of four types, I just found one more where it seemed that they had two types that seemed to have overlaps and you could have two different elements going on. So to summarize, you had type one calls. They were called simple calls. That's where you know you've lost someone and you get a telephone call and you pick it up and you can hear the sound of static on the line and you might hear their voice. They might say your name. They're not really responsive, and it only lasts a few seconds, and you don't hear the receiver go down. So it's a very kind of blunt thing. Um, In more modern stuff with mobile phones, it could even relate to someone passing away and the phone ringing at that same time. Um, But there's no conversation there. I'm more interested in where people claim there's a conversation. Type 2, prolonged calls. That's where telephone rings. You pick it up. You have conversation for half an hour with Brian. Brian tells you about different things you two have been doing, but he said, you carry on with it. You know, I'm, I'm going to go away for a while. I need some headspace. Fine. Um, phone goes down and Mary turns up at the door. Ding dong. You go and answer it. Mary's very tearful. What's wrong, Mary? Oh, didn't you hear about Brian? He died in a car accident yesterday. 
And then you're confused because you say you've just spoken to him for half an hour and she says you can't have done. Confusion hits and you realize what's happened. Check with the call company. Chances are there isn't any evidence of that call taking place at that time. But interestingly, there could be multiple witnesses to you having taken the call. So what's going on there? Type three, answer calls. That's where you go and make the telephone call. And it could either be that instance of you not knowing the person's dead and yet you still seemingly get an answer and a long conversation. Or someone answers who is alive and well, but they were verified to be nowhere near that telephone at the time you claim that you called them and they've got no recollection of the call. So someone still answers um, with their voice, their characteristics and their knowledge and continues a conversation with you. Uh, type four, mixed calls. Um, that's a mixture of the type one and two calls, which I found in a new sample. And that could be where you are aware that someone's dead, and yet you have repeated telephone calls from them that are extended. Um, um, so, and, and it could go both ways. You could have a mixture where it's, it's very short and, um, what was it? Uh, very short and you didn't know that the person was dead either. So that's the mixed calls. And then type five, you intend, to, uh, these are called intention calls. You intend to make a call at the last minute, you might change your mind, and yet the person you intend to call still seemingly receives that telephone call by you. Um, so it's like those answer calls in reverse in a way. So one example was D. Scott Rogo had this. He said that um, it was 10 o'clock on a bright Sunday afternoon, something like that, and he was planning on making a telephone call to a colleague of his at the UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute. Even though he intended to make the call at 10 o'clock in the morning, he never actually did. He went and uh, marked some papers and edited some books instead. And then at four o'clock in the afternoon, he received a call from the assistant at the office of the very psychologist he intended to speak to with them saying that they were responding to his message. When he asked in Blazers what they were talking about, they said that at 10 o'clock that morning, a call had gone into them from him, leaving his name and his number, asking that the call be returned. So that's what those calls are like. That's all five different types. And, and which which type is the most common? The most common is type 1 calls, and that makes perfect sense when they're occurring around the time of bereavement. You've got a lot of misperception going on. This person is grieving. They'll typically be home alone. They might want that final goodbye. They might not have had a chance to say goodbye. They might have ended on a bad note. Um, people like uh, Robert Baker in his book Hidden Voices talked about these calls in relation to possible intentional amnesia, where even though you might get a, a cold call, a double glazing sales company or something else offering insurance um, they're calling you and yet you've lost a, a son a daughter something like that someone very close and and you just blank out the fact that it's no one that you know and you're reprocessing it in your head as though you're actually speaking to the dead um, that's what he believed as, as to how some people might be filling in the gaps and then adamantly believing they've spoken to the dead other ones could be very simple confusion where if they have lost a son or daughter um, they pick up the phone and they just hear someone say mum dad and actually, it is a child trying to call home, but when they get a strange response from a grieving parent and they realize oh, that's not my mom or dad, they might not apologize and explain what they've done. They might just put down the phone. For the grieving parent, they might not necessarily want to follow up that call. They just accept it as a very special experience and a sign that perhaps their child is still around them. And yet there's, there's nothing to back that up. When we follow the conventional line of inquiry, we've got so many things that are making something seem paranormal when actually it's not. Even though I am kind of demonstrating all these skeptical routes that we can take and it's so so important to look for those first even outright fraud and, and phone pranksters what we're interested in as well in parapsychology is where people claim that they've got something that seems to go beyond all of these conventional elements sometimes the the prosaic explanation is uh, to me 
equally as equally fascinating as the the so-called paranormal option in, in other words the the example you gave of someone who who uh, who called the house a cold call to see if you want your windows glazed and they the person who's grieving completely uh erased that part from their memory not deliberately mm-hmm. but to me that's almost as fascinating as the paranormal explanation what do you think as an as a psycho- you know someone in a, with a background in psychology yeah, I mean, I, I hang in the balance of that explanation. And in everything that I've written on the phone course, I've always included Robert Baker's point, because I, I think, you know, you've got to be critical, you've got to present both sides of the argument. And I do think he's presenting a valid case that, you know, we can't really explain either way. But certainly from what we know of memory, and also being in high levels of anxiety, in this case, separation anxiety, the mind can play tricks. Um, so in that case, yes, it's possible, especially if we follow up the phone call records. And we do know that at that time it was a call company. Um, in other instances, though, uh, we know that just purely being in a state of bereavement isn't necessarily a good explanation as to why someone might have a, a full-blown hallucination, um, especially if, you know, over the telephone, they claim that they've had information from the dead that they didn't know about that they follow up and it turns out to be true. So that would go way beyond the hallucination. It would start to suggest that other things are actually going on. Um, so I, I do accept what Robert Baker is saying, because if it's just their word against the telephone, because they were home alone, um, then you've got to consider that aspect and also what they're claiming the deceased person said on the phone. And if they're not saying much except for, I love you, goodbye, then it's a very nice story. It's very comforting for that person. And I would advise you don't explain it away for them. And that's not going to help them at all. They've clearly taken comfort from it. But if you want to write about the common explanations behind these experiences, we will go through telephone faults, the core companies, looking at memory, looking at anxiety, looking at Robert Baker's theory and, and various other ones. We would consider all of these conventional routes. And there are many before you'd even start to touch on, well, what if it's ESP? What if it's PK? What kind of case do we actually have for that? Uh, at the uh, the top of the hour, uh, going into uh, hour two, I'll, uh, I'll share with you my uh, potential telephone call from the dead because... Um, you know, I, I'd like to lean on you for some of your expertise and maybe figure out what actually happened there. Uh, we'll take a quick time out, come back with Dr. Cal Cooper as we continue to delve into telephone calls from the dead right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping a watchful eye on the new world order. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Just a reminder, I'll be appearing at Occulticon 2019, which runs September 13th, 14th, and 15th. I'll be speaking on the Saturday. That's the 14th. It's a terrific outdoor conference held in beautiful Holstein, Ontario at the Mythwood Event Campground. 61 acres of forest and lakes and ponds and plenty of camping spots full-service cabins, go to occulticon.com to order tickets. Or you can go to strangeplanet.ca and then click on the Live Events and Appearances page. And the link is right there for Occulticon 2019, September 13th, 14th, and 15th. I hope to see you there. Victor Vigiani will be there from Zeland Communications talking about UFOs. Steve Santini, who's on the program next week, will be there with his Paranormal Waters presentation, including artifacts from various shipwrecks like the Titanic. 
Scott McClelland from Carnival Diablo will be there with an amazing show. It's called The Paranormal Show, Not to Be Missed, and many, many others. That's Occulticon 2019. Occulticon.com. They're also on Facebook or go to my live events and appearances page at strangeplanet.ca. Dr. Cal Cooper stays with us for the full two hours, the author of Telephone Calls from the Dead. Uh, at one time, they called this, uh, was it called Psychophone Messages? Who came up with that that name? Um, psychophone messes were, uh, messes, <laughs> psychophone messages um, was uh, Francis Grierson. Francis Grierson operated under the uh, name Jesse Shepard as a medium in Europe. I think he was originally based in California. And psychophones weren't his kind of term, but he was using a psychophone. Psychophones were these mini uh, recording devices, but you, you will play wax cylinders um, that were kind of no bigger than a loo roll holder, the cardboard that you get in the middle. And you could play um, music and um, people were popularly buying inspirational speech on those things. The idea was that you go to sleep listening to these things, trying to motivate you, being good in business and various other, thing, uh, various other things. The idea being that the unconscious mind was still listening and taking in this information and would improve you. Um, but Francis Grierson was taking in one of these devices that apparently he'd adapted um, with colleagues and took it into a seance room and would have a blank cylinder on and would have it working in reverse. So if you spoke into the speaker, you could record information. And allegedly, he was coming out with messages from Abraham Lincoln, General U.S. Grant, Benjamin Franklin, uh, and various other figures. And it's all written up in this very small book that's been uh, reprinted and photocopied, reproduced for um, so people can see it now. It's just called Psychophone Messages. So do check that out. It's a very strange little book. Do any of those recordings still exist? I don't know what happened to the device, let alone the recordings. I mean, every time I've heard about these devices, um, I'd love to know what happened to them. And I especially love the one that was in the UK by a guy called Melton, who was from my hometown of Nottingham, that had one of these devices, and it was adapted over time so even members of the public could try it out. The only device I'm aware of is the Scammel device um, that's still about, and it's in the Society for Psychical Research office in London. And uh, we wrote about that, uh, myself and Steve Parsons, and uh, people like Wim Kramer uh, kind of looking into it further and, and how it works, the early electronics behind it. Uh, and now today we have uh, something that's very popular with ghost hunters and paranormal researchers, something called called Frank's Box. Uh, yes. <laughs> what, what do you make of that device? Yeah, there's some people that you really can't convince that, um, you know, saying, look, this, this was a big business device. Um, look at its very kind of obvious makeup. This is a, a purposeful thing that was put out. It's a broken radio. It scans the stations. But the unique thing is it doesn't stop when it finds a beautiful, suitable wave, ba a wave band that's very clear, so you can play that radio station, the music, the conversations, the sports resorts, you name it, um, it just keeps going. So you get snippets of a suitable station in between the static. So if you start asking questions to that, why do you think you get suitable replies? Because you've asked a question, your brain is then also scanning for the suitable response. Um, it, it's a gimmick. It's beautiful. It's fascinating. I use it as a tool to kind of demonstrate um, anomalistic psychology to my students. But it's fascinating that some ghost hunters um, are out there still kind of using it, thinking it's anything useful. Not that these people end up ultimately writing anything that gets submitted as a peer review paper. Um, but whatever they're doing, if they're keeping these records themselves and think it's a suitable experiment, I can categorically say it's, it's not a legitimate experiment by what the very device is designed to do. And, and 
Your thoughts generally on EVPs? Um, EVPs. So I've got a colleague uh, at the University of Central Lancashire, um, Anne Winsper. She's um, finishing her doctorate off, which is entitled The Psychology of Electronic Voice Phenomena. And it kind of um, extends beyond what I've just mentioned as well, that our brains will naturally scan for correct responses and fill in the gaps. And uh, there seems to be a hell of a lot going on there. So she's really updated where we are. The, the biggest study that was done before her in the UK was by David Ellis in the late 1970s. And he more or less concluded um, in his book, The Mediumship of the Tape Recorder, that people will fill in the blanks. And he couldn't find anything anomalous going on. And yet people like Frederick uh, Jurgensen, uh, sorry, um, yeah, Frederick Jurgensen and Dr. Konstantin Radova, in their works, they were speaking about all these fascinating words and phrases that were coming out. He couldn't find it. Now, admittedly, throughout the history, there's been some interesting accounts coming forward, but nothing that's really ever fascinated me. All right. I've got to say that. <laughs> all right. No, no, I'm glad you did. We'll, um, we'll come back and uh, talk a little bit about uh, Edison on the other side with, quite literally, on the other side with Dr. Cal Cooper right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.